Welcome to Beyond the Stacks, a podcast from Westlake Porter Public Library. On this show, we will spark your curiosity and take you beyond the stacks and inside all that the library has to offer. On this episode, we will take you on a tour through the history of libraries from the time of Alexandria to what they are today, including a little Westlake Porter Library history. Then, we will try to stump our unstumpable librarian. Hello, my name's Chad Stotler. I am the local history librarian here at the Westlake Porter Public Library. My name is Heather Finotti. I am the PR marketing manager at Westlake Porter Public Library. So Chad, today I was kind of hoping that we could talk about the history of libraries and Westlake Library's history in general. Okay, I think I can answer some of your questions. All right. So my first question is, what was the first library? Well, knowing what the first library is, libraries have been around for a very long time. The ancient Greeks and and in the ancient Near East had libraries of sorts. Uh, In the Sumerian city-state of Uruk, around 3400 BC, they were collecting tablets, clay tablets with writing on it. But a lot of those were mainly laws, maybe some epic poems and stuff like that. Uh, They weren't really places that you came and checked anything out, but there have been collections of papyrus and parchment and tablets and sort of like those sorts of things going around since the uh, 3400 BC. But actually one of the most famous libraries is the Great Library of Alexandria in Alexandria, Egypt. So what did that library look like? Well, it was a Seems to be a, have been a pretty large establishment. They had bins where they kept scrolls, and they also had some meeting rooms and halls for lectures, and also places that you could sit down and eat and sort of and study rooms. So um, something similar to what our library may look like a little bit, but also it served as a, as a sort of model for universities and college libraries into the into the future. So, Chad, when do you think that transitioned from what that library was to more the model of what they are today, like taking a book home and reading it for entertainment? Well, at least in the United States where the colonies, Ben Franklin had started a library in Philadelphia in the late 1700s where you had to join a group and pay dues to be able to check books out and take those home and read it at home. You could usually only take one or two books out at a time, and you had to return them within a few days. So you didn't have the three weeks like we do now, but you had maybe a, a day or two to read the book and take it and take it back. So those sorts of libraries were really only accessible to people who had money and also the ability to read. Hold up. So like you had to pay a subscription fee to go to a library? Yes, you had to be a member um, of the library to go into the library and use the materials. So that would be one of the only ways that you could access newspapers. Not one of the only ways to access but it was one of the main ways to access newspapers and books on many different subjects that you wouldn't have the funds necessarily to, to buy. So books on religion and theology, botany, science, math, history, geography... Anything you can imagine, the, the library would have at least a, a couple of the most uh, well-known books there available for you to check out. Tell me a little bit about Westlake's library. What's the history there? 
The library here at Westlake was started in 1884. Our benefactor, Leonard Porter, passed away in that year. And in his will, he left $1,000 to establish a library in what was then called Dover. Uh, out of the initial $1,000, $500 was for the purchase of new books. And the other $500 was to go into a bank account. And the interest from that $500 was uh, supposed to be used to buy new materials. So they didn't have a, a large budget for buying new books, but they did have something that they could keep new books coming, coming in. In December of 1884, a committee was formed to draft the constitution and bylaws for the new literary, it was called the Porter Library and Literary Association. So they had uh, Articles of Incorporation were notarized on December 15th of 1884. So each year we celebrate the founding of the library on December 15th, usually by having cookies handed out in the lobby. And sometimes we'll have um, somebody comes in to uh, impersonate Leonard Porter. And uh, any resident of Dover could pay a dollar a year to join the Literary Association, which gave them access to the library then. Do we have any materials here from when the library was first developed? Uh, in our quiet reading room in the adult services section, we do have some books that were from the first collection of the Porter Library. Yes, we do. You've read those books? No, I have not read those books. We have we have them under plexiglass so people don't touch them. That includes me as well. So you've never touched those books? No, I have not touched those books. You've been tempted to touch those books? No, I've not been tempted to touch those books. Are they on Libby? Version, I'm sure versions of at least some of them are, because I know we have like the Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan is on, and there's so that's a perennial classic. So if you are so inclined, you could check check it out on Libby, maybe even find an audiobook on Libby, so you didn't have to actually read anything. I may have to add the Pilgrim's Progress to my summer reading. <laughs> it might do you some good, Heather. <laughs> so Chad, as the history librarian. I, what, what would you like to expand with our history area here in Westlake? Um, I would like to have some more items that actually relate to the history of Westlake. It, there's always a fine line of trying to, to expand a collection, but also not getting stuff that we either have duplicates of or things that aren't necessarily relevant to the area. So you know, we have a couple physical objects from from the sort of the history of the of the area but but we don't have a whole lot but we do have to keep in mind that we don't have a whole lot of space here to keep physical objects so it's kind of a fine line to walk between collecting stuff and also running out of room very quickly to store the items but we do have some books or actually some ledgers that date back to the early 1900s from the from the library which include information on how much was spent for certain repairs, things like how much they spent for light bulbs, stuff like that. We also have some books that um, show who checked out which books and if there were any fines for them returning them late. And another thing that gets a lot of use here is we have a complete set of the yearbooks for the Westlake High School, Dover and Westlake High School, dating back to um, the early 1920s up through 2022. Pretty awesome. Let, let, let's, uh, let's leave Westlake for a bit, and I'm curious, what do you think is the coolest library in the world? Well, I, I think I would like to see the Library of Congress sometime. There was the uh, story 
a couple months ago with the musical artist Lizzo, who had used a crystal flute that was owned by James Madison, I think. And so she, so they have a large collection of flutes, musical instruments. They have all sorts of of things, not in addition to books and magazines and other materials. So it's it was initially founded as supposed to be like a research area for congressmen and senators to do research, but it's grown into so much more that they collect all sorts of stuff. They have all sorts of government documents there. So yeah, I think it'd be pretty cool to go to the Library of Congress and see what they have there and, and utilize their collection. When it comes to libraries of the world, do you have any idea of what a library out there might have that's unique that only that library might have? Like you said, a crystal flute. I mean, we don't have any flutes here. But is there anything else out there that you might know about that the listeners might think is interesting? Well, also in Washington, D.C., there's the Folger uh, Shakespeare Library, and they have the largest collection of first folios of um, Shakespeare's plays. So shortly after Shakespeare had died, they created um, these folios, which included all the known works of William Shakespeare into one binding, and several hundred were made, and so they're very valuable. They're kind of where our accepted texts for the Shakespeare for Shakespeare's plays and sonnets come from. So Folger, I think, well, he was just an avid collector, and he bought and bought and bought anything relating to Shakespeare, including these folios. And so now they reside in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and I think they own several hundred of them, and there's uh, a couple more folios spread throughout the world, like in England and, and in Europe. I know you're a history librarian, but where do you think the future of libraries is going? Well, we've seen it in the um, here at Westlake. We have a makerspace that has all sorts of neat tools and and sort of uh, gadgets that can be used to 3D print things, cut vinyl, you can make music. We're in a, in the sound booth in the three in the makerspace recording this right now. A lot of the libraries have access to digital and electronic copies of books and music. So you can use things like Libby and Hoopla. And that gives you the ability to access something at home. So, like, if you're like, boy, I really want to hear a Brian Adams song, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, of course, no library is going to be open, but you can go on Hoopla and probably find a Brian Adams song that you could download to your phone and listen to it for uh, a couple days till your heart's content, and then probably check it back out again if, you're, if you still haven't gotten enough of Brian Adams. Or if you're... Um, son or daughter comes to you and said, Mom, I, I, I'm supposed to read this book for class. And you're like, when's it due? And they say, tomorrow. And it's now 9.30 and you know all the libraries in the area are closed. Perhaps there's a copy available on Libby or in Hoopla and you can check that out. So it gives people the access to do things when the library's not open. Also, if they're sick or homebound and they can't, can't get out, you can check out these things using mobile, using electronic devices like a tablet or a phone. And you can have the library at your fingertips without having to worry about carrying around a, uh, a pound and a half book or a two pound book. Or if you want to read, have five books checked out once, you don't have to carry around five books. You have all this amazing stuff that you can do using uh, tablets 
We have things like hotspots that allow you to take home a little、uh, device that helps you connect to Wi-Fi. So for people who can't get、uh, Wi-Fi in their home or have the internet, this can provide、uh, a way to access、um, the internet from your own home through a service provided by the library. I have a somewhat personal question for you. If you can go back in time and hold any book you wanted, what book would you choose? Well, I think it'd be pretty neat to see one of the first printed books in Western Europe, which is、um, like the Gutenberg Bible, which that really kicked off the revolutionized printing in Western Europe. There are other books that you know they talked about like scientific revolution and stuff like that, and and. Really revolutionized our understanding of science and the planets and stars and stuff like that, that date back to that time. So being able to see books that were published back in the 1500s or 1600s is is amazing. You know, I, I can remember one experience. I took a rare book librarianship class for my master's degree, and I went to the Cleveland Public Library, and I was using a book that described that was written by I think a French missionary who traveled through. This part of the country, and he was describing seeing、uh, Lake Erie for the first time. And I'm reading a, I'm holding a book in my hands, published in England in like the 1640s or or 30s, and it's there in my hands in Cleveland, <laughs> reading about you know the Great Lakes from you know over you know almost 300 years earlier. That's awesome. Chad, thank you so much for talking with me about the history of libraries and Westlake. I hope everybody else enjoys hearing about, you know, the history of libraries. Well, thank you, Heather. It was my pleasure. Many thanks to Chad and Heather for taking us through the history of public libraries. In just a moment, we'll see if we can stump the librarian. But first, hey, everybody! This is your old pal Andrew. And I gotta tell you, I love everything used. I love saving money. I love used books. I love used puzzles. I love used food. Well, okay, that last one might have gone a little too far. But here at WPPL, we have a book nook, and our used books are like the sleek, reliable sedans of the reading world. They've been tested, pre-loved, and they're ready to take you on an unforgettable journey. Imagine the excitement of driving into a compelling mystery or getting lost in a fantastical realm. Our used books have the power to transport you to ignite your imagination like nothing else. And the best part: these books come with character, with history. They may have a few dog-eared pages, a stain or two, but that just adds to their charm. I tell you what. But wait, there's more. Don't buy yet. You got to look at those book nook puzzles, CDs, DVDs, and a few other surprises. If you can't find something interesting, then you're not looking hard enough. The prices? Oh, they're unbeatable. We got discounts that'll make your wallet do a happy dance. Did I mention that the book nook's also staffed entirely by volunteers? So that means all the proceeds can be donated back to your public library. So come on down to the book nook today. Grab that adventure you've been craving at a price that won't break the bank. The book nook, where books start their second life. Now it's time to stump the librarian. On this segment, we take patron questions about what to read next, and challenge Aaron, our reader's advisory librarian, to find the next great read. Here to pose the patron questions is a second Aaron, our young adult librarian. My name is Aaron Spears. I'm the young adult librarian here at Westlake Porter Public Library, and with me is I'm Aaron Manning. I'm the reader's advisory librarian. 
So you're stuck with two errands at the moment to yes. uh, go over some Reader's Advisory here. I guess we should start from the top. Aaron, what, what is Reader's Advisory for folks that don't necessarily know that term? So Reader's Advisory is the process of helping people to find books based on the books they already love. All right. So let's say someone comes in, they just finished Emily Henry's novel, Book Lovers, over the weekend. They're loving this book-themed romance. How do you go about determining what a recommendation would be for that patron? So sometimes we get lucky and we already have recommendations in mind. But most of the time, especially for a genre that I'm not as comfortable with, I love to use Novelist. It's a library database. It helps you get book suggestions and it breaks down books into appeals. So appeals could be anything from tone or pacing, character type, writing style. Just because you like a book in a certain genre doesn't mean that you like all aspects of the genre. And it's a great way to find recommendations. So then also kind of having a little dialogue with the patron to know, like, what did you like about book lovers helps you steer them towards hopefully their next favorite read. For, for sure, yeah. All right, well, it's time to quiz you then, Aaron. Okay, so I'm the patron. I loved book lovers. What do I want to jump into next? Well, the first book that instantly comes to mind for me was Meet Me in the Margins by Melissa Ferguson. It's another adorable book-themed romance set in a publishing house. And actually, I have intel from a staffer at Thomas Nelson, the publisher, that said this book was actually inspired by two staff members there. Oh, nice. Right? It's a cute romance with a bookish theme set in a publishing house about a young woman who might be falling in love with a mystery co-worker who's giving her feedback on her latest novel. So that seems like that checks a lot of boxes for somebody who enjoyed book lovers. Seems right up their alley. Um, it is a, uh, it's becoming more of a popular theme in romance, yes. So is it one of those once there's like a bestseller or a real popular one, publishers are like, hmm, I think maybe we have an opportunity here to, to get some more books out on that theme? Yeah, you tend to see a lot of trends in genres like romance or mystery. So right now, books are in, which is great because we're all reading books about books then. Absolutely. Is there, um, so if someone comes in with that question I just posed to you, would you just hand them one book or would you give them maybe a couple of options in case, you know, one doesn't quite capture their imagination? For sure. I like to try to aim between one and three books, usually closer to three if I can help it. Sometimes it's a little hard to find a really good book that's also on the shelf because they're so popular. Um, but in this case, in addition to Meet Me in the Margins, I'd also try to send them home with By Any Other Name by Laura Kate which is a heartwarming rom-com about a romance editor who's hired by a mysterious writer for a desperate case of writer's block. But she quickly makes a discovery that completely upends her perfectly ordered life. That's a pretty good teaser. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a fun one. So coming from the young adult world, uh, or the young adult section of the library, um, we're a little careful with what we're placing for romance and the, the aiming at 7th to 12th graders. Um, are these steering more like Fifty Shades of Grey mystery, like like romance, or are we talking kind of like a safe for everybody kind of level of romance? So romance as a genre is very diverse, um, especially in spiciness level. Of the two books that we were talking about, Book Lovers is considered a little bit more steamy. Okay. So if you're looking for something a little bit more spicy, exciting, that might be a good one. And Meet Me in the Margins is actually very chaste and tame, so that's good for Someone who wants a cute romance without any of the uh, intensity. Gotcha. So do you have like a spicy meter that you have <laughs> that, you, that you use depending on what level people want? So I, um, I personally don't read a lot of romance, 
But Novelist does offer, um, under their appeals, different rankings for different types of romances, which makes it really easy to find a book that fits your comfort level. Sure. And they'll use terms like chaste or spicy or, you know, Christian or conservative to depending on the scale of what kind of romance you want. Okay. So steamy is good if you want something a little bit more passionate and, again, chaste for something a little bit more tame. Gotcha. I know there's a, a regular patron that she really likes the murder mysteries, but is not of the age where you want to get something real grisly. So she really enjoys in the adult section, the cozy mysteries. Okay. So something that's a little bit more, like you said, on the murder mystery scale, it's like not too grisly, but still does have like a propulse, uh, propulsive plot because there's a murder mystery that someone's trying to solve there. And novelist actually uses terms for that as well. So if you want something menacing would be more intense or gruesome or violent. There are terms for that. Okay. So you can choose your mysteries or your horror based on your uh, tolerance levels. Gotcha. All right, so let's shift gears away from the world of fiction. What would you recommend a patron comes in, um, actually even myself, like I'm interested in science, but I don't know a lot of like the nitty gritty of science, but it intrigues me. Um, What do we have for a patron who doesn't want to read anything too complicated, but is intrigued by a great science read. So I'm a big fan of science books, but I also don't have the uh, the background to really appreciate the more technical stuff. So for someone like us, I'd recommend anything really by Randall Monroe. He's a uh, the author of the webcomic XKCD. Mm-hmm. He was actually one of our featured authors for our virtual author talks, and you can watch the archive from January on our website. And he's written several very funny books. I'd start with What If? Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions, which takes your strangest and your silliest questions and looks very seriously at how they would work. For example, what happens if you throw a baseball at the speed of light? Or you fill the lava lamp with real lava? (laughs) He's great. And they just published a sequel, um, What If 2?, additional serious scientific answers to absurd hypothetical questions if you possibly wanted more. On the flip side, he has how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems, which takes really simple tasks like getting rid of a library book or uh, telling somebody's age and gives you these ridiculously but scientifically feasible methods of doing it. For example, you could tell your age by measuring the radioactivity in your teeth, or you could dispose of that library book by throwing it into the sun. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that. I, I, I've read the first book of his and you're right. Like I'm, it's, it's good at like condensing it down and explaining uh, a complicated science process in like layman's terms, I guess. So I was like, oh, I feel like I get that. I couldn't really explain it to you after I read it, but I, I, I enjoyed it as I read it. <laughs> I didn't realize he was going the flip side, though, to give you the overly complicated scientific answers. I like that. I like that approach as well. Yeah, it's great. Um, and if you're looking for more along a similar topic, um, I recommend anything by Mary Roach. She wrote Stiff, Packing for Mars, Grunt and Fuzz, Caitlin Doty, who wrote Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Ooh. And Sam Keane, who wrote The Disappearing Spoon. Is the Mary Roach book stiff? Is that like the life of cadavers or bodies after they've died? Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a gross but fascinating book about, you know, what happens to the body, what science can use it for if you donated your body to science, things like that. 
I remember liking that one a lot because it was also like every chapter was like a new almost short story. You can kind of hop in almost anywhere there as well, which actually I feel like that's what I did with Monroe's first book as well. Like I found a couple chapters that were intriguing and, uh, you know, it obviously captured my attention from there on out. So, well, if you liked uh, liked Stiff, my, well, My Cat Eat My Eyeballs is kind of a similar book. Caitlin Doty is a mortician and the book is Ooh. composed of questions that were asked to her by children. Oh, that's an interesting. Yeah, I like that. So they're ridiculous. They're kind of gross, and they're really fascinating. Have you read that one? I did. It was really fun. So will my cat eat my eyeballs? You'll have to read it and find oh, out. Oh, excellent tease. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. That was uh, some great recommendations. If you want to check uh, the links, we'll have links to all of those uh, recommendations to uh, place your hold or check out as well. And uh, I guess we weren't able to stump you right now, uh, but we will uh, collect some future future readers' advisory questions and see if we can stump you in the future. All right. Thanks, Aaron. That sounds so weird. Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> thanks for listening. We hope we've sparked your curiosity to keep exploring something you heard today. Follow the links in the show notes if any specific title piqued your interest. We'll speak again shortly when we go beyond the stacks in our next episode.